The slick stick was the most simple idea. It was the easiest to execute. It was the quickest to execute and it was the least amount of capital. And it's been the most successful by far. Everything would go viral. If I'd go to bed, I'd wake up. We'd have like 3 million views and 30 grand in sales. I was constantly chasing my tail for months. We'd sell 5,000 units in a week. That's insanity. I always knew I was different. I wasn't very good at school. Felt like I was such a big dreamer and believer and had so much ambition. We've sold over half a million units. That existed because you created it. Do you feel proud of yourself? I do. We've just moved into this beautiful new office. I walk in the lift every day and I'm like, I've created this. I'm definitely proud of myself, 110%. But the word failure, it doesn't exist in my mind. I know I will be successful. I know my brand will do incredibly well. Whether it's this one, the last one or the next one, when you believe in your ability to succeed, it's inevitable. It'll happen. Just quickly before we get started, guys, if you've been enjoying the podcast, can I please ask that you consider leaving a five-star review and subscribing or whatever platform you've been listening. It really helps the podcast grow. All right, Mia, we are, we're finishing it off with a banging absolute powerhouse. We just realized we've been here for three days, but the podcasts have all been in the space of essentially 24 hours. So podcast number four in 24 hours, we're going to finish it strong. Best uh, to last. I know, best to last. <laughs> um, so Mia Plessic. Is it Plessic, really? But you just say Plessic. That's correct. Yeah, I was yeah. say Plessic, yeah. but properly. Plessic. You, what do you eat, Croatian, Serbian? Croatian. Yeah. All my yeah. friends, I'm from like Western Sydney, so okay. like all my friends are like Serbs, Croatians, yeah. Massos. So, all crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but six-time founder, fucking, you would have learned a lot from your successes, from your failures. But we're going to focus on, obviously, your journey with uh, the Slick Stick Creation, building Slick Hair Company, all the amazing stuff you've done then. Um, we'll get into all of that. You've done amazing things in retail space, not just e-com. So we're getting, going to get into all that sort of stuff. Um, but I, I, I just want to touch on, as I said, six times founder, um, what were some of the other businesses you'd launched along the way before you come to Slickstick? Oh gosh, it feels like a world. And when did that ago. start? When did you start your first brand? Um, I was 22. Mm-hmm. So my first business was Pearly Whites Australia. It was an in-home teeth whitening kit. Um, one of the first. Yep. Um, it's funny when people say six times founder, I like to say five times failure <laughs> <laughs> leading to the business yeah. that I'm in today. But yeah, look, I've had a few product-based e-com businesses um, ranging from all different markets, from teeth whitening to, um, you know, subscription-based tampons to uh, cold press juice company, which was more of a bricks and mortar sort of business. Um, yeah. And everything in between, I think I came out of high school and I just wanted to work for myself. I wanted to be able to create, and it's so cliche, but I wanted to be able to create my own future. Mm -hmm. Um, so I thought that in order for that to be the case and to be my destiny, I need to be my own, I guess, boss, you know? So I started the teeth whitening business. It did really well. Um, and by really well, you know, we did about a million dollars rev in the first couple of years. Um, but the problem was I had a really bad business partner and it all went belly up. Um, so got out of that, sold my shares, um, started a juice company, sold that off. So it was kind of dabbled in a lot of business Mm -hmm. opportunities, I guess, in my twenties. Um, and I call them my, you know, my business, uh, degrees. Exactly. They were my degrees. They were my learnings. Um, I didn't come out of any of those businesses with a lot of money, but I came out of those businesses with a world of knowledge. Um, so 
I guess that's brought us to here, uh, to Slick Hair, which I founded three years ago. Yeah. So it sounds like, did you always know that you wanted to start a business, even like throughout younger when you're in school? Did you go to uni or anything? I started an exercise science degree um, when I was fresh out of uni. No idea why. I think everyone was doing it in Geelong, which is where I grew up. <laughs> um, and I was a PT for a couple of years, kind of just to make some money. Um, but no, I didn't know yeah. that I wanted to be a business owner, but I always knew I was different. Mm-hmm. I always knew that my brain worked differently to all my peers. Um, I was never very, I wasn't very good at school. Um, I swear I'm undiagnosed ADHD. Um, And yeah, I just think that I felt different. I knew there was something different about me uh, growing up. And I still to this day look back at my primary school, high school, and I just remember just not feeling like I would fit in, um, but also felt like I was such a big dreamer and believer and it's so much ambition. Um, but now that I'm in my thirties, I'm like, yeah, there's something I'm different. There's yeah. something there. I, um, I can relate to that in, in, in so many ways. Like I didn't, I don't know about you. Did you have like family or anyone close to you that were starting businesses? No, no you, you, neither did not. I. No. So it's like, we have to a very humble family same. with, you know, just normal family. And like growing up, I always went to public school. So even like, it wasn't really spoken about starting your own business. Yeah. When I thought about starting your own business, it was like being a barber or like being a tradie, like that's what I didn't yeah. realize what the world is like, what all the possibilities are. So you actually have to go through this stuff. Like I was the same. I was really ambitious in school, but I was actually, I did really well. Um, so I did law because that my brain back then, I thought that's the biggest, coolest thing you can yeah, do. If you're smart, be a lawyer no. or a doctor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I lasted like two months in uni. Yeah. Right. Um, and then I've never gone back, but it's the same thing. I right now, the worst, my worst like nightmare come true would be like to have to do a nine to five for like nightmare. the rest of my life. Nightmare. What would that be like for you? The thought of going back to do like a nine to five? Honestly, it's, it's painful anxiety. It really is. And I, I don't like to say it very often because obviously I employ people that work nine to five. So I try and make our workplace as fun and enjoyable as possible to make them in that eight hours, mm-hmm. enjoy their life. Yep. But the thought of me having to go and work for someone else, I just don't think it would ever work. I mean, all of my casual jobs growing up in my teens, I got sacked from all of them because I'm just too opinionated. I don't like being told what to do. If you tell me to do something, I'll do something completely opposite. <laughs> that's just my personality. Yeah. So I don't know how long it would last in a nine to five and, now. And that's the thing as well. Like I don't say that judgmentally to anyone that has a nine to five, not at all. Like most people will, but like I say that to get, because we're going to, very soon in this podcast, we're going to talk about all the challenges, all the fucking hard things about it, but still there's something inside someone. And if you're someone listening that feels that itch to do it, just try Like it's not for everyone, but like I would rather work 16 hours a day for my own business than eight hours a day, you know, do, totally. doing that stuff. So it's just like, it depends what's in you. And it's funny. You said undiagnosed ADHD. I'm pretty sure I'm the same. And I just found out like from TikTok, essentially yeah, all those clips. I'm like, what? That's the, I want to follow these pages. I'm like, they're talking about me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, interesting, super interesting. Yeah. But um, I want to talk about some of the lessons that you got from these failed businesses. Now, one thing, um, uh, an article I was reading that you said, and I feel like it's 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 such a it's such a powerful thing that you experienced. It also made everything harder. Like having success or like a good amount of success with the first business, making a million dollars with your first business, early twenties, mm-hmm. then sex the ex- expectation for every other business that you start that, Oh, it's just going to be the same thing. What was it like navigating those other businesses with the expectation of you can just make a million dollars like that? 
great question because I remember when I exited the first brand, I went into my second and I had this level of standard. Mm-hmm. And that standard was to make X amount of dollars in X amount of months. And if you don't hit that, you think you're instantly failing. Um, one thing I definitely want to, you know, mention with the first brand, yes, we turned over that revenue. It wasn't profit. Um, but I guess when you see hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank at the age of 22, you're like, shit, this is easy. Let's just do this. Let's just, you know, copy and paste this blueprint over and over again. But unfortunately, that's not always how it works. Exactly. But think about you said things started to go belly up. Obviously there wasn't the best um, partnership dynamic in that business. What what sort of things started to go wrong? What things can kill a business? Is it important for people to, to understand? It's interesting because I look back now um, at 22-year-old Mia starting that business and my, my business partner at the time, the things that he did, you know, weren't great. Um, but at the same time, I, as a more mature person who's in business, been in business for a while now, I can kind of understand why he did those things as well because I was naive. I had no fucking idea what I was doing. I was just this young girl with a good idea but had no idea how to run a business. So he kind of saw it as an opportunity to make a lot of money and he's like, I'm going with or without you. So I can kind of see now why it happened. Um, That's not to say that what he did was right, uh, but it makes, it kind of makes sense. Um, But you know, through that and all the legality side of things, you know, I came out with a business degree from that business. I really did a a business finance, business law. I swear to God, all of the above. So, you know, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to go through those hurdles because it taught me so much. Yeah. It's always the challenges, the things you don't realize going into a business that teaches you the most for the next thing you do. Like Going into launching Happy Skin, like I didn't realize how much time I'd be spending on the phone to, to lawyers, solicitors, yeah. about different things, issues, trademarking, all that stuff. But I feel like it's kind of good to go into it naive because you just have this energy and you have this optimism to move forward. But there are things you've got to be aware of. Now, I've had everyone on the podcast, you're the first one so far, obviously we had Priscilla who will be coming on who's a solo. Everyone else has been in, in, in either duos or, or, or three. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I've been in businesses by myself and, and business with business partners. Why do you feel like for you that you've had the best results and you enjoy doing it by yourself the most? Well, out of all the startups, this is the first one I've done solo and it's the one that's succeeded the most. Now, I'm not saying that that's because I know more than all my business partners in the past. I just think it probably comes down to my personality um, and working in partnership probably is going to end up in a similar scenario to me working a nine to five. <laughs> um, look, I think it's a case of being able to really, you know, I've, I'm a very visual person. I can, I can see the end goal of slick in five, 10 years time. I can see that. And if you don't have a partner that can see it as clearly as you can, there's going to be some head to head. There really is. And I think when you're quite a controlling person, um, and you like things to go your own way, um, I don't think, I don't see that as a bad thing. It just means you're very meticulous with what you want. And in business, um, if the person you're doing business with isn't the same, you know, you're going to, you're going to butt heads. There's no right or wrong ways to do it in business, whether it be going solo or doing it together. Like that, that, the, the guys we had on last night, the Puria guys, they've been extremely successful as well. And it's like, they speak about it openly. They're talking about it on the podcast is like for the first two, three years, we would fight all the time, argue, like not, I like debate, but disagree. like disagree, yeah. you know, and only they said only in the last six months when it got really bad at a point, like not, nah, they locked each other in, like in, in their rooms and just spoke for six hours to work wow. all out. 
But until then, and it's like, that's a business that's doing, doing really well. And it still happens. Now you've obviously learned a lot from your experiences for anyone that is considering going into a business with a partner, which I mean, I still, I still love doing, I'm a very collaborative person. I'm, I'm similar in like, I can be quite particular with things, but I love collaborating and I'm not going to tell someone you should or shouldn't do it with a business partner. But if you are going to be doing it with a business partner, what sort of considerations do you think should be made? Because I've seen it end messy so many times. It always comes down to money. I find in terms of my previous partnerships, I think where I've gone wrong is that, you know, you're usually friends with the person first and you're like, oh, let's do this business together. And all of the hard conversations that you need to have and that you know you need to have, don't, you don't have them at the start. You just kind of go, oh, it'll be all right. Yeah. So whether that's how much equity you are having up front, how much capital you're both willing to invest, how much capital one you know, partner is willing to invest, invest over another. What does that person bring to the table? What do you bring to the table? And if it's not structurally in a contract from day one, before you even make your first dollar, you're asking for trouble. And that's where I went wrong. You know, we, we had a, a startup, I had a business partner, you know, they were prepared to put, you know, 20, 30 grand in, but there were no conversations about, okay, we're going to need a capital injection in X amount of months. We're going to need potentially a loan here. And once they put that money and they're like, wipe their hands, my, my job's done here. I don't, I'm not putting another dollar. That's, that's, that's kind of where it, we clashed heads. That's, yep. that's was the problem. Even though it's hard when you're just starting off, if you only have like 10, 20 grand to build a business, like you don't want to spend $2,000 on a shareholders agreement or whatever it costs. But if you can, even have to. you have to, have you know to. what I mean? Like it makes things so much easier moving forward. Now, before we get into everything slick stick, what do you think from all your business experience moving like in the past before slick hair company, what do you think is the biggest lesson you took from all of that from your business degree on the tools? Everything needs to be legalized, have your contracts in place and do things properly from the start because businesses can start as hobbies and you can make no money at the start. But if you have a vision of what you want that business and brand to be in the future, you need to back yourself and you need to invest a few thousand dollars and do it properly from the beginning, especially if you're going to be in partnership. That would be my advice. And as well, while, while it is like additional funds people have to put in, it's like anything. If you put the more skin you have in the game, the more determined you're going to be to make it happen as well. So it keeps you accountable and gives Absolutely. you that extra motivation. Now on the flip side of that, what do you think, what success or what thing that you did right from all your experience in the past have you taken into to Slick and it's helped you build it to what it is? I think the number one, it's very cliche, but it's self-belief. Like I, the word failure, it doesn't exist in my mind as, as cliche as that sounds. I know I will be successful. I know my brand will do incredibly well, whether it's this one, the last one or the next one. When you believe in your ability to succeed, it's inevitable. It'll happen. Where do you think your self-belief comes from? I have no <laughs> idea. I really don't. I think maybe it, it might come from the fact that if this doesn't work and I do quit or fail, um, I'm back to a nine to five. And the thought of that again, like I said earlier, it just doesn't sit well with me. All right, guys, just quickly, I've got some news. I've spent close to the past 18 months building the ultimate program that takes you through the complete process. And I mean the complete process of launching and scaling your very own e-commerce brand from zero 
all the way up to a million dollars plus per year. And now with this program, what you're going to get access to is 15 modules with over 100 training videos and 23 hours of in-depth content, taking you through everything you need to know to build a successful e-com brand. And this is the important part. This isn't just stuff that you can look up on YouTube. This is stuff I've taken from real lessons and experiences building Happy Skin Co. from zero all the way up to an eight figure per year brand. You're gonna get access to loads of custom tools, templates and calculators that I've used to build and run Happy Skin Co. There's gonna be one-on-one mentoring with myself and other expert coaches. And there's also weekly group Q&A calls with myself to make sure you're feeling completely supported throughout the entire process. And now what I've learned from consulting to everyone from people starting their very first e-commerce brand all the way up to brands already doing seven figures plus per year is that there's a process and a framework to follow if you want to be successful with e-com. Now, if this is something you're interested in, hit the link below and go to join.viralbrandbuilder.com. All the information's there and you can book a call directly with me. Otherwise, send me a DM and we can chat there. Anyway, let's get back to the pod. Were you as confident in yourself in the first business as you are now? 100%. Yeah. Even though I had no idea what I was doing, I still don't think I really know what I'm doing, (laughs) to be completely honest with you. But yeah, 100%. Yeah, that's yeah. wild. It's hard, it's hard to put a finger down, but you've got a really close relationship with your grandparents as well. Very. Right? I feel like for me, that was definitely a big part, but like the unconditional love and the type of relationship you get from your, your grandparents is like different to like a normal parent. I feel like I agree. if you're close to them growing up and you spend a lot of time with them, yeah, I feel like that helps. You know what yeah. I mean? Being surrounded by so much love and support and like, I'm sure they only told you you can do it, you mm-hmm. know what I mean, and championed you that yeah, whole time. Yeah, you can do anything. 100%. Yeah. Now, moving into to, to Slick Stick uh, as it started, where did you get the idea from? You said it was about three years ago. Talk to me about the the process, whatever inspired you to get that idea. And then what were the next steps? Because so many people get stuck at the idea phase. Totally. So for me, with all of my businesses or all my products that I've ever brought to market, it's always been a case of find a solution to an everyday problem, whether that's teeth whitening at home because you don't like the dentist, you don't want to spend $500 on whitening your teeth, or you get your period every month and you always forget to buy tampons and you always find yourself in that situation. So we created the subscription where you get it every month. It's always a solution to a problem. And the slick stick was exactly that. But the best thing was no one had done this particular solution before. Mm -hmm. And I always laugh because out of all the businesses that I've started and the products that I've brought to market, the slick stick was the most simple idea. It was the easiest to execute. It was the quickest to execute. And it was the least amount of capital. Wow. And it's been the most successful by far. So I find that incredibly funny because you hear of these people who are starting a business and they take three, five years to get the business off the ground and product development and market research. And, you know, you're 150, 200 grand deep before you've even made a dollar. Whereas I started slick with like 250 bucks. It was like straight off the bat. I just, just jumped in. Like there's such an advantage to being first to market. Like you can't compare. Yeah. Like, and, and like, I do, I, do, I do a bit of like mentoring, consulting, people starting businesses. And obviously one of the best questions people come to me is like, oh, what product do I launch? It's like, there's a lot of different things involved in what I think makes a high potential product. But like the number one thing is like, if it's untapped and look, not everyone's going to be first to market, but if you can get in really early, like if you were early with the teeth whitening, if you stuck to that, you probably could have made a lot oh, of We would have been high smile. Exactly. Yeah. So what do you look for? Obviously solving a problem, the solution, like you said, but do you have anything else that you consider in terms of like a criteria for like, if you, if let's say you, you sold this or whatever, you move on to the next business, what sort of things are you thinking about? Like what boxes do you want ticked for a new product that you'd build a brand around? For me personally, if I would buy the product, 
and I'm the demographic, then it's a product that I would sell. Yeah. I wouldn't get into men's grooming or men's clothing because I don't know that market. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like to sell what I would buy. And when I saw the slick stick, um, it was a white label product being marketed out of Korea. Um, when I saw that very ugly product, I was like, that there, it's the next light bulb. Yeah. Like that was a light bulb. And I remember exactly where I was when I saw the ad. Um, I was driving back from my parents' house down the coast. It's probably on my phone <laughs> driving. Great. Stuck in traffic. And I saw the ad and I was like, that is genius. If that works, like that's a game changer. So I bought one. Three weeks later, it arrived in this little white satchel with, um, you know, Asian writing all mm-hmm. over it. And I tried it and I was like, this is elite. Like this is the best thing I've ever used because I have the worst flyaway hairs in the world. So I was looking for a solution that wasn't hairspray. It wasn't hair wax because, you know, as a girl, when you put wax in your hair, your hair has that sticky, crunchy residue, right? And then you've got to wash your hair. And I don't wash my hair every day. I wash it every once a week, right? right? So for me, it was like, I want a solution that I can slick those little fuckers down. <laughs> um, but I don't have to wash my hair at the end of the day. And that was the solution. It worked. It genuinely worked. What's the, what's like the substance in it that is it's like a gel? It's more of a serum. Okay. It's more of a serum based yeah. product. So it doesn't leave the residue in your hair. And how long did it take? Like, so it's so funny. Like, yeah, you, the, the girls we just had on the sister would like, because they're creating an innovative product that it's awesome to do, but it takes so long. They spent yeah, three years. R&D, money, R&D, market tens research. Tens of thousands of dollars. The, the, the Purio boys was a hundred, over a hundred thousand dollars because they're coming up with new formulations. And if you've got a, an idea or a problem you're really passionate about, awesome. But like same thing with happy skin. Sometimes the most simple idea is the best. Yeah. Like we saw an ad, um, we were the, like, I don't know if there were any brands anywhere else in, in the world, but we were definitely like the first market that I was ever aware of for like an at-home IPL. Mm-hmm. But the thing we just saw like a, was a weird, they still sell them now, like those weird shaver devices with a light on it. Just an inspiration from a random man. We thought, wait a minute, is that a laser hair removal thing? Yeah. It wasn't. And yeah, right. this, this is how green we were back then. Wow. I didn't even know what Alibaba was. I didn't mm-hmm. know AliExpress. I didn't know how to find a manufacturer. So we spent like a month going down a rabbit hole of like trying to find product engineers to create this thing. And I don't know how we found out about Alibaba, whatever it is, like, this is just a game changer. Game changer. But it's like this information, when we started, and you, you're even many years before me, there was no information. There was no playbook, you know what I mean, about where to go, how to start. And I know something you're, well, building businesses so many times, you start to develop like a bit of a blueprint for like how you approach, you know, setting up a new brand. Before we go into the specifics of, of the early days of, of Slickstick, what is that framework? Like what is what are the key steps that you look for when you're going to build a brand? Alibaba's my Bible. Yeah. And it's kind of frowned upon in the industry, I think, and not a lot of founders will admit to it. But I think in terms of market research and product research, it's the best place to start. I, I wouldn't know. Now I would because now I've got contacts that have, you know, access to thousands of factories and manufacturers around the world. So I don't go to Alibaba anymore. I have my own company that assists me with product development. But back then I had no clue. And that was my savior. I wanted a product. You type in Alibaba, it's there. You speak to the manufacturer. You want to customize the formulation. You want to customize the packaging. They'll do it for you. It's like the Bible of business. Exactly. I don't understand. It's just a marketplace where you can connect with manufacturers. And I'm the same now. Like I've got relationships in China from doing business there for many times. So I don't have to go to there, but if you don't have any relationships in China, how, how are you going to just, where are you going to start? 
Like it's just a market and like, yeah, just for product research, there's so much potential there. Um, now you said you, you started it with very limited money. How much was your original stock that you bought? How many I think units? it was like between 250 and $500. Wow. Yeah. And the way I made that happen, because obviously for anyone out there who's ever looked into starting a product-based business, you've got minimum order quantities if you want to customize packaging, right? And that's usually around five to 10,000 SKU uh, units. So for me, I went and bought the white label version of the slick stick and I just wrapped a label over the existing branding. I remember seeing your stories sitting and on the I, floor. I, and I, I literally face. look back and I'm like, holy shit, I can't believe I did that. But for the first probably two and a half thousand units that I sold, if you peeled off the label, it would have had Asian text underneath. Wow. Do you still have any of those? Yeah, I do. That's the best. Yeah. Like, what about, did you have a box for it or nah. how do you send it out? Just literally like a- just in a satchel. Mm-hmm plain satchel and I had like a little uh, Dymo label printer and I used to type in the address and print it out on the little one because I obviously didn't do enough volume to warrant an Ozpost e-parcel account. So I would take it to the post office, put stamps on it, which is really weird because I look back and obviously I'd had a lot of business experience prior, but it's funny how when you start a new business, you've got to start from scratch again. Mm -hmm. So even though with Pearly Whites we had an e-parcel, account and we weren't doing it like the caveman days, like typing it out. Um, I still had to do, go through that process with this business. So it felt like it was my first business again, like learning again, solving problems. I've spoken to so many successful business owners now, and it's like, everyone has the story of like, you got to be scrappy at the start. Have to. Like once you've made money and you're launching new products, yeah, you can do, do things the easy way. You can do, you can customize everything. But at the start, like you don't have the money to do that. Like we, I, I, I don't know if we have them. I don't, I don't have them. So we probably don't. I wish we had them with a, we ordered 110 units for the start, which is pretty expensive because we got an expensive product, but we got, we got this packaging done and then it arrived and we're just like, oh, it's so bad. It's so ugly. Um, so we got, and it's hard because that was like a decent sized box. We got printed from like this printing company, this wrap, and then we had to wrap over the old packaging, fold it in the, so it's like the first 110 oh, wow. customers would have the OG, OG. Like, I love it. It's like, you don't have money to do that stuff. And like people kind of like use that as an excuse. Totally. But you clearly didn't do that. Like in your opinion, what do you think stops people from like going from idea to actually making it a business? I think it comes down to they think that it needs to be perfect. Um, And I live by this saying, I don't know who said it or who said the quote, but it's something along the lines, if you're not embarrassed by your first concept or prototype, then you've you've launched your business way too late. Yeah. And what I mean by that, if you're spending two, three, five, ten years doing, you know, research and development, you know, products development, um, packaging concepts, it takes months, years to do that. Just do it. Just start. Who gives a fuck what it looks like at the start? If you've got a good product, you're gonna, you, you will do well. You will sell. You will move that product. And that's what we did with the Slick Stick. I look back. It is so embarrassing. <sighs> Dylan, I'll show you after this conversation. It was so ugly. The packaging is like I cringe when I look at it. But it's sold. People don't care. If it fixes a problem, who cares? It's it, just it about get, getting the MVP to market. And Absolutely. it's like you can spend even like, like you said to that point, obviously it's the best way to do it. But like 
even if it takes you six, if you want to keep working on that perfect version in the background, you're going to learn so much more about business by actually being live and trying to sell these things anyway. Absolutely. You can feed that feedback, those wins, those losses, the things that worked, didn't work back into that final version of your product anyway. And it's not just the product website. First website was funny as look back on your first ads, but it's what gets you to where you are today. Now talk to me about how you started to scale the brand so quick. Cause I remember like you did it all from your, your, your living room of your place for like yeah. the first so six months So we were like early days COVID when we launched, it was February, 2019, I believe. Um, so we're in lockdown here in Melbourne. You couldn't go 5Ks from your house. You had a lot of time. Officeworth was shut. Like we couldn't do anything. So I started sharing the journey of starting this little small business from my apartment on TikTok. And I guess this was early days TikTok when everything would go viral. It would, the virality percentage would be so high. Like every, so many videos would go viral. So I'd, you know, do a packing video, something so basic. I'd go to bed, I'd wake up, we'd have like 3 million views and 30 grand in sales. So crazy, huh? And then I was like, shit, that's insanity. Um, and we got to a point where we didn't have the stock that we were selling, but of course I'm not going to stop selling. That's ridiculous, <laughs> right? Uh, you just got to bat your eyelids and say, I'm really sorry. You know, we're out of stock, but stock's coming soon. Um, so I was constantly chasing my tail for months. You know, we'd sell... 5,000 units in a week uh, and I didn't have the stock. I'd have to wait for it. I'd have to air freight it to Melbourne. Cost me a fortune during, during, during COVID. Oh, you would have yeah, paid a fortune. Yeah, fortune. Um, but it all worked out in the end. And I think obviously combining viral videos on TikTok, um, I had a, a decent sized Instagram following. I didn't share that for quite a while on Instagram um, when I did. Were Reels already around then? No, I, no, like oh, I don't I never know when think Instagram so. Yeah, neither do I. Um, so, yeah, TikTok videos going viral. Then I started to invest some of the money into some influencers and kind of testing that situation. Um, and it was insane. Every influencer that we worked with, no matter who it was, we get like a four times ROI. And it was just like, this is so freaking easy. Yeah. It's not always like that. No, it's not. But because the product was so unique and it was affordable and it was, you know, now accessible, people were just lapping it up. How long was the lead time? Like how long were you waiting in between? Was like four weeks or? Yeah, I think like there was definitely some customers that would wait three to four weeks for a product for sure. And how did you, because we had to do the same thing. It was probably four or five months in because like we had 110, 10 were for influencers, 100 were for customers, sold out in like a week and a half. Wow. Then we'd. All the money we'd have, we'd buy like 300 and then like a thousand if we could, always as much as we could afford. But it took almost six months to get to the point that we were fully caught up in stock to the point that now, okay, we have stock for the next month worth of sales. How did you navigate that period and how long did it take to you had like, okay, I've got stock in there? Yeah. Um, look, I think it was probably six to 12 months before I really started to, I think it was a fear as well. It was that fear of failure in the sense of I don't want to go spend all of my money on stock because what if we don't sell it? Yeah. So I was trying to be conservative. So I know I remember early days I would probably have needed to order 10,000, but I only order 5,000 just in case I didn't push the stock. Now it's obviously a different story. Like we're ordering 50 to 100K units at a time um, and we have to do that quite regularly. But back in the day I was really nervous to buy stock. I was the same, but like – we also like knew like we could sense that we needed to grab this opportunity before 
all the competitors come in, which we'll speak about soon because I know what it's like to be first to mark and have everyone trying to copy you, stealing your ideas, ripping your content, all that sort of stuff. But once you finally caught up, was it because like everyone thinks, oh, you got a business, look at Mia, she's packing a few hundred orders a day. They expect that you've just got bank and bank and bank. How long was it to the point that you could actually start paying yourself like a proper wage? I think I put myself on a salary after about a year and a half. Yeah. It's not as quick as people think. No. Um, I was actually a part-time nanny for the first probably year and a half of Slick. Um, I was babysitting for a family down the, down the road five days a week. I'd get there at like 7 a.m. The parents were corporate, so they'd leave. I'd look after the kids all day. I'd get home probably 9, 10 o'clock at night, and then I'd work on Slick at night. Wow. Yeah. And I was getting paid like $30 an hour cash. Um, and that's what was paying my mortgage um, initially. I've got, a, I've got a lot of stories like that, you know, growing up even, you know, from 18 onwards, I've pretty much always worked for myself since I came out of school, apart from little casual jobs like nannying here and there. But I would always figure out a, a way to pay my rent. Um, I remember when I was like 20, I started making concrete pots and painting them and then going to the market on a Sunday and selling them like, I have to sell five of these pots to pay for my rent. And I'd always make it work. I, di- I don't know how I would then I started making cushions, like these really cool cushions and selling them on Facebook Marketplace. Um, I always found a way to make it work. You, you can always find a way. Like even just like if you're really desperate, like, man, you, people flipping stuff off eBay and Facebook Marketplace, you, oh, can, you can make- I still do it. Yeah. I'll see something on the side of the road. I'll take it home. I'll give it a lick of paint because I love, I'm, I'm very DIY. Yeah, what's that called? What's that thing called? Like re- upcycling? Upcycling. That's the one. I still do it. I, I think it's so much fun. Um. But yeah, anyone can make money. I mean, there's some really cool videos from Gary V where he's still, he's worth a lot of money. He'll still go to garage sales and find things and flip them on Facebook marketplace. And that's when he's the happiest. Totally. And yeah. it's like on that stuff as well, that no matter, like it might look hard, but you just got to look outside the box. There's always a way. I think there's, there's two reasons. There's, there's many, but there's two reasons that I think a lot of people don't do it. Um, first one is like, like you said, you, you'd always find a way one. I really think a lot of people don't want it enough. 100%. Because if you do want it enough or if you, if you need to do it, then you, you'll find a way to make it work. Like yeah. I physically couldn't work a job I hate, like working off. I did sales in, in the corporate world for like almost two years before we launched the business. Um, and then I was working that when we launched the business. Thank God it didn't take long to quit. But I was fucking I had depressed. Not depressed. I hated work. You feel like you failed yourself because oh. you you're spending so much of your life doing something you don't love. Yeah. But I think a big part of it is not enough people are willing to take the risks. Whereas me personally, I'm such a risk taker. Like it's actually it's not. It's probably more bad than it is good. Um, I'll get an opportunity. I'll give you an example in Slick. Um, we pitch a product or a new product to a retailer and we don't even have a yes from them yet, but I'm so confident that they'll say yes, that I'll just go and buy the stock, which is so risky because we're talking 50, 100, 150K PIs, right? So I will go and buy that stock, get the the invoice, know that that's payable in the next 60 days. And I haven't even got a yes from a retailer yet. Like that is so risky. Crazy. Um, and I see my partner, he has been working in sales for 10 years and he's a gun, but you know, like 
he'd obviously love to do his own thing one day. Like who, who wouldn't, right? He's that type of person. And I say, just quit, just <laughs> quit. He's like, I can't just quit. I've got you know, five mortgages to pay for. I'm the type of like, fuck it. I'm quitting. I'll figure it out. I don't know how. I'll figure it out. That's my personality. That's like that's to you. You're an extreme example of risk taking, but also like for a lot of people, it's like for me. Everyone's like, because I, I was working like these jobs, getting like a thousand bucks a week. I'd like pay you all you like. I'm not saving that much money. I'd like when we launched the business, put ten grand in each. Once I put the ten grand in, I probably had like two or three grand in my bank account. Um, and so everyone's like, ah, oh, that's such a big risk. I'm like, how is that a big risk? What am I going to do? Work corporate for ten years? save up a hundred grand to get a mortgage and be unhappy. Like the risk is not doing it. Absolutely. So it's like, if you can, like it, the risk is not trying, like who wants to get to their deathbed and be like, fuck, I just played it safe. It's like the hard thing is uh, like it's conditioned in everyone from so young through the schooling process, totally. respecting authority, doing what you're told, following this, this process. And for a lot of people, it generally does work, but so many people, it doesn't fucking work for them. Yeah, they but just we're put not trained it. in school and I've watched some incredible videos going back to the Rockefeller family, right, and the educational system. We are not brought up in school in the education system to train our brains to work for ourselves and to make our own money. We're trained to work for the corporates. Mm-hmm. We're trained to work for the government, make money for them, not for us. 100%. And that's why, like, I look back when, when people used to ask me, do you think you're like, you know, the, you, you're born to be an entrepreneur or business owner? I said no for a while because I did or wanted to do all those other things. But I could, I'm, I, the only thing I can do is, is be in business. But I didn't even realize me, a relatively extreme example, until I was 24 years old because of all that shit that you have to do. You know what I mean? It's like when I have kids one day, I de- I'm not going to put them in normal school and do like Montessori okay. stuff, 100%. get them to like – that's what life's about. Absolutely. Like, yeah. And it, it's becoming more and more obvious to, to certain people. So, so it's good that people are starting to think outside the box because life, particularly with like social media, the internet, even if you don't want to become a, like I have a business, you can be a content creator in whatever random niche you love. You can be an upcycler. You can do whatever creative weird job that you want and earn enough money to pay the bills. And even if you're just paying the bills, but you enjoy every single day, wouldn't you rather do that than work a job you hate and maybe save an extra 20, 30 grand a year? Any day of the week. Yeah. Yeah. So early days, viral TikTok videos. Obviously, it was easier to go viral again back then because less people creating. Now totally. it's so many more people. Mm-hmm. But did you start to develop? Because nowadays, you might not go viral every time, but you'll still go viral. Did you start to come up with like a recipe for like what's, what's working on TikTok to like, okay, this is going to be relatively good chance to pop off. Yeah. I was funny because I learned pretty quickly that the most simple videos are the ones that go viral. And if you put too much thought into it, they don't, which was really strange. So I think the ones that went the most viral were packing orders. Um, there was one video where I put like a $50 gift card for Peter Alexander in a random person's, um, uh, order that went viral. Um, a video of just me using the slick stick and showing people how it works. Um, and then just videos, you know, of me packing orders. That's what people loved to see. What video um, went the most viral? And then was it like what video like equated to the most sales off the back of it? Well, it's funny. The first video I ever posted on TikTok had nothing to do with slick. That went viral. And that was a video of my dog, Honey, in the back of my partner's Tesla. And it was on dog mode. <laughs> and I filmed her in the car and said, don't worry, my owner will be back soon. The aircon's on and it's 16 degrees. (laughs) 
that had 9 million views. 9 million? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, and that still to this day shows up like Tesla, TikTok uh, pages and that that video across my page and all of the reshares would have over 100 million views by far. That's wild. Um, so that really set me up on TikTok. And then from there, I think my first video was one of me um, putting the label on the actual bottle mm-hmm. and sharing the behind the scenes of getting the product ready to sell. Um, I, from memory that went viral and then, you know, not all of the videos that went viral had anything to do with the product. Um, during COVID I decided to rip my bathroom apart and rebuild it and do a renovation for a bathroom that I've never done before. Um, that was in the daily mail and we got a lot of PR from that, that whole saga. So yeah, that, that kind of helped me. But as soon as I started sharing more about business, that's, I remember one video, I can't remember which one. I think it was the one where I put the gift card in. It had like 3.4 million views. I woke up with like 35 grand in sales. Yeah. yeah. Do you find now what, three years down the road, are you finding that TikTok, like organic TikToks, relative to the amount of reach they get, of course, are they driving more sales than they used to or less? Less. Less. Yeah. Like it, it doesn't, I don't think it attributes to really any of our sales anymore. Yeah. Why, why do you think that's changed? Um, I think the algorithm is very different. I think that, like you said earlier, there's a lot more creators now um, and it's a lot harder to get views, Um, not necessarily viral videos, but even just views. Like I personally on my TikTok have like 85, 87,000 followers um, with like I think close to 3 million likes, right? And that's mostly across my early days in Slick. Now I'll be lucky to get 3,000 views on a video. It's yeah. just changed. I don't know what it is. The algorithm of TikTok is very strange, but it's different. It's weird. We go through periods on TikTok as well where like we will post like 10 videos and like four of them will go viral. And then we just, I feel like we, we might have been an empty like TikTok jail for a little bit mm. like we didn't have a video and we'd at least usually get at least one video viral a week like of the podcast and there was probably like a month more about a month no and then we just had one like go viral again for the first time for ages but like the tiktok algorithm changes so much so it's like any one channel you can't be reliant on for your business now obviously viral tiktoks might have been a great strategy at the start what other things did you start to do that helped you scale um influencer sleep? marketing yeah um, we dabbled obviously in paid ads. Um, we just had a really bad experience over and over again, just agency after agency, retainer after retainer. At the end of the month, monthly look at the report and you go, I'm losing money. Like what's the point? You know, so I decided to switch off all paid media in terms of Google, Facebook, Instagram, which is probably the worst thing I ever did for the business. And we're just starting to re-pick that up again now. But we relied purely on um, our database that we generated over the last three years, which is really big. Um, and also our influencers that we collaborate with. And like I said earlier, we'd get like a four or five ROI percent of um, return on investment on all of the influencers that we work with because the product was so unique um, and affordable. So that's really what generated the sales initially when we were pure play e-com. Now, obviously we're predominantly B2B. Yeah. And um, with influencers, obviously threes is a long time in that world. How do you see their role? Has it changed? Like in terms of, I imagine you're getting less conversion now than you used to. hundred percent. Again, is. it's um, 
something we don't really do a lot of at the moment. We really had to pull back on our markets marketing spend for a few reasons. And the, mo- the main one being that we have been partnering with some really big global retailers and all of our capital was going into buying stock. Um, and one thing that, and probably the biggest uh, issue that I face on a day-to-day basis in business is cash flow um, and having cash in the bank to be able to buy stock or um, pay for an influencer. But the issue with influencers that I personally have found is that as as their following grows, their rates increase, but their conversion doesn't necessarily increase. If anything, it's going down. So we just decided like, you know, we wanted to collaborate with one particular Australian influencer. She wanted $80,000 for a reel and a couple of stories. I'm like, that is absurd. What's absurd. the most you've paid for a collab? Most I've paid, oh, God, who was it? Um, I reckon 35K. I think yeah. we paid someone 35 grand for, shut up. Someone's on the horn out there. Um, I think we paid 35 grand for a reel and a story series. Did it break even at least? No. Nah. We were probably for that particular one. It was a big risk, but it was more brand awareness that we were really looking for. So, um that helped for sure because then we obviously were able to collaborate with other influencers because off once you, that, yeah, yeah, off the back of that. Um, but that would probably be the most expensive yeah. one. We paid 60000 um to one person. Didn't, didn't break even. Yeah. But it's like, you know, the going into it, that is probably not. And it's like the biggest Australian influencer you could work with, um, but then you work with, people close to them that like siblings or for example, yeah. who charge maybe like say four grand yeah. per post and we made so much more money. Yeah. You've got to be creative. And the problem as well I find with a lot of these brands is they collaborate with particular influencers who might have five, 10, 15 million followers, even a million followers. I mean, obviously to have someone with over 5 million followers in Australia is very rare. Um, but if you were to collaborate with someone who has like, you know, let's say 500,000 followers and you pay them. So we worked with some micro influencers, right? And we might pay them like two, three, five grand, right? And our conversion for them was like tenfold to the big ones. But the problem is a lot of brands is they'll go work with these big guns, but they don't look at their insights. And the problem is they might have 5 million followers, but 80% of them are men. And are they going to buy a slick stick? No. Are they going to buy an in-home IPL machine? No, they're not. So yes, they might have the followers. Yes, they're a female, but it doesn't mean that they're going to make you money. It's so important you say that. That's something that I, I feel like why we did so well at the start with Happy Scene, how we did so well so quickly was obviously influencer marketing. Paid spend is how we really scaled it. But it's like, I saw so many brands and these are brands that have been in like killing it. Massive followings seem like they were doing really well in terms of sales. You never fucking know. But it's like, these are brands that are like um, tanning oils and like, bikinis, lingerie, and they're working with all these beautiful women, right? But then it's like you, you look at the insights or you just click on, not even yeah. insights, like you just click on, okay, who's liking their stuff? You scroll through. It's all guys. It's all seedy men. Why? Yeah. Like don't these brands think about that? Yeah, like they, it's, you'd think so, but I don't think they do a lot of the time. And what we found, it's like the best ones for us because we had a bit of a high price point product, 100 to 250K were the best for conversion. Mm-hmm. Over the that, like – the bigger the influencer, the less close the audience is to them. 
Yeah. So it's like the less they really care are invested. And then for the smaller ones, for us, it was just like, it's really worth like this with a product like ours, is it really worth sending to all these people? They're only going to drive a couple sales, mm. like half of them won't post it. It was really, it was really not worth the time. Whereas nowadays we are doing more micro-influencer stuff because I feel like that's working more. But where does your influencer marketing strategy sit today and how different is that to, are you still doing like a lot of micros, just gifting yeah, and stuff like that? we do that? quite a bit of gifting um, because the slick stick is, you know, we've got great margins in that product and it's a, it's a, quite a cheap product to buy um, from a cost perspective. So we can afford to send out thousands of units for free. Obviously a product like yours, it's a bit more challenging because the cost of goods are a lot higher. So for us, it's a lot easier um, and we're prepared to to lose a lot of stock um, in return for content or them sharing it on their socials. Uh, so UGC is obviously a strategy that we we dabble in quite a lot. Um, the big macros we don't really touch at the moment more so because we just can't afford to risk such a large amount of capital um, or cash flow into working with them if we're not going to get the return. Um, but like I mentioned, we've really put a big hold on a lot of our marketing spend D2C. We're really focusing on our B2B, which again has, it pros, has its pros and cons because year on year our, our D2C sales had, have like dramatically dropped. It seems our, that way from yeah, the outside yeah. looking in. But the, no, no, I thought you said up. We're just about retail. No, so, no, no, yeah. no, no. So direct to consumer, oh. our e-com has drastically dropped. Lucky you pivoted then. Yeah. But that's only because we've we've reprioritized our focus. It's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. I'm not going to sit here and say that we're now focusing on B2B solely because you don't want that. You we we are in competition with our retailers now, right? And our margins are so much better when we're selling direct to the consumer. We're losing 50, 60% of our margin selling to a retailer. So We've, I've made a big mistake. I've made a really big mistake by focusing on supporting our retailers and neglecting our direct-to-consumers. So it's a big strategy change that we're going through at the moment to really start to build up the D2C again yeah. and nurture that because that is our business. That's our business. Sephora, that's not our business. Yes, we're selling to them, but that's their business, right? So- they could drop us tomorrow, you know, God forbid, right? We don't have control over that. We have control over our customers and our margins and our products internally. We, we, I need to, we need to be focusing more on D2C. The thing, yeah, for sure. And it's, it is difficult. You only have limited resources, limited time, limited staff to do both at the same time. Ideally 100%. you would, because like you said, you might've had however many hundred percent year in your growth with retail, yeah. but the challenges that I would imagine for a brand like yours when CPMs are $30, $40 per thousand on Facebook and you're selling a $30, $40, $50, even $50 product, it's like, what? It's ridiculous. How do, you, how do you make that yeah. work? And then it's so many people have had to turn off advertising. I feel like it's coming back a little bit in mm. terms of paid, in terms of on Facebook, we're getting better results now than we were nine months ago. Oh, that's good. That's good. To nine hear. months ago. Um, but you just spoke about the importance of diversifying your channels Retail, you're obviously killing it. Like every every month, I feel like you're launching into a new retailer. What's the plan? How are you going to re, you know, diversify your channels? You have as many retailers, obviously, as you can, which is awesome. Yeah. But in terms of the D2C space online, what are you going to look at? What channels are you going to focus on? Look, it's a really tricky one because any business owner that I know who is pure play B2B, you ask them about their D2C and it's like it's minuscule. It's 5 10% of their sales. Um, so, you know, our business goal, my business goal for Slick is to be in all the major retailers globally. We want to be 
like a B2B powerhouse. We want to be in all the Sephora doors. We want to be in Ulta. We want to be in Target. We want to be in CVS. I want to be in Douglas across the whole of Europe. Um, you know, this is the background on my phone. Like they're all the retailers, right? Put that to your camera. Like that is like, that's where we want to be. We want to be in all the major retailers globally, but and, and by doing so, and we are, we're doing it. Like it's happening. Like we're in conversation. We've got 27 deals on the table at the moment with retailers around the world. Like it's happening. But the problem with that is when it's so accessible in retail, customers are more inclined to go to Coles and buy a slick stick on their weekly grocery shop as opposed to jumping online and buying one and having to pay for shipping, right? So it's the convenience as well. So you have to find that happy medium where you're still making good revenue online but you've got to understand that B2B is always going to be the beast. Exactly. So it's about finding that happy medium. And right now we're probably 85% B2B, um, 15% D2C would be our sales. That's so crazy. Like the journey you go through as well. We were 100% e-com for so long as well. Now like retail, it's like I see in in a year, in a year's time, we'll probably be doing double – Double what we're doing e-com and we've always been an e-com first brand. Love that. Through through retail. You know what I mean? Now I saw your phone. I love that. Is like is visualization part of like your process and like those sort of reminders? Like what does that do for you and, and how have you used those well, throughout your journey? How many times a day do I look at my phone? It's the first thing. I see the Sephora logo Europe boots look fantastic, super dry. I look at these brands and it's funny because I haven't updated this for a while and it's, we've actually launched in a few of these retailers since I made this background. So it's, that's also, I, I keep them there cause it's like urban outfitters. Like we've launched in urban outfitters. Like, like tick. I've ticked that off. Um, I'm a very visual person that motivates me a lot. That looking at that screensaver, I'm like, shit, like that's the dream. Like imagine what my life could be like if we we do that and we achieve that. Not necessarily from a monetary perspective, but like the feeling of achieving a goal is just, it's so important because as a business owner, 99% of my day is just solving problems and it's failures and it's mistakes and it's just shit. Right? Like when I walked in today, you're yeah. like, sorry, just putting out another fire. Yeah. So we've just like perfect example today. We've just printed our factories, just confirmed 50,000 new slick sticks have just com- been completed. And Sephora have just come back and said, oh, the Arabic on the back of pack is wrong. So that's oh. just a perfect example of a day in my life. Right. So when you get the 1% wins, you've got to thrive on those because otherwise you just go mental. Like my <laughs> life, it's just, it's just stress. <laughs> It's stress, but like you're addicted to it. Hundred like percent. You can't do it you, any other way. I wouldn't change it for the world. A mistake like that, fifty thousand labels printed incorrectly. How much do you think that'll cost your business? Um, it's not the end of the world because we would. So previously, before we put Arabic on pack, Sephora were just putting a little label on the back of the box, which costs us like one or two cents per label. So they'll just have to continue to do that till we, um, you know go through all this stock and have to reorder and then fix the next one, hopefully. Um, so it's not the end of the world, but in the moment you're like, oh my God, how does this happen? And with, with dealing with mistakes like this, you just get, and that's the thing. Like when you first get into business, like you said, everything just works so easily. If you have a really good product, everything's too easy. Then you get into business for a few years, you realize there's never going to be long where everything's going well, whether it's a week, two weeks, a month, if you're lucky before something really big goes wrong, not really big, but there's always stuff that you have to overcome. Things are always going wrong. Mm-hmm. How did you adjust your mindset to that? Because remember for me, it was like, why would I want to put myself through so much stress? Mm. 
How did you adjust your mindset to that? Now it's like, I just know you got to be grateful for that because that's part of the the process, part of yeah, the privilege I mean, of running look, a business. I keep reminding myself if it was easy, everyone would do it, right? If it was easy to start a business and launch a product and go into Sephora and all of this, ev- everyone would have a brand in there. Um, you know, the, the hurdles and the the loop, like all of the things that you've got to do to, to get a product, say, into Sephora Middle East, it's, it's, it's incredible. 99% of people wouldn't bother. They just wouldn't do it. But when you're so fixated on that end goal of walking into Sephora and seeing your product on the shelf, like that is a drug. That feeling is like nothing you've ever experienced. So you'll do anything and everything that you have to do to be able to, to go through that addictive feeling. It is literally like a drug. When I walked into Sephora Middle East the first time and saw my product in the biggest Sephora store in the world, I literally, like I've never taken drugs, but I could almost (laughs) relate that that'd be like shooting up. It was just the most ecstatic feeling I've ever felt. And it's rewarding because there's so much work that goes into it, even not just the pitching and and, and making the decks, but it's like once you're onboarding our partnerships manager, Steph, shout out to Steph, she's the best, the amount of stuff she has to work through oh. just to onboard like weeks and weeks and weeks. And like, yeah, it's I'm not the same. Easy. I've got um, Tracy, my sales, my global sales manager. I don't know how she does it. Yeah. I don't never want her job. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, there's so much work it's involved. So rewarding seeing a product you created in stores of like some of the biggest retailers in the world. Mm-hmm. What does the process look like? to get stock? Like you were talking just before we started, the amazing thing about what you've done in terms of retail, no distributors. None. All direct to the retailers, which is extremely difficult a lot of the time. What's the process like for from no contact to getting getting stocked? Um, I think everyone has a different journey. Um, but for me personally, the first couple of retailers, they actually approached us, which I think is pretty unheard of. Um, I guess it came down to the virality of the product online. Um, our first major retailer was Coles, full distribution in Australia. Um, and that came about from one of their junior buyers contacting me through LinkedIn. Um, and she goes, can you email me, um, you know, your brand deck? And her email was at gmail.com. And I was like, this is a scam. Like she's not legit. Um, but then when I looked at her actual profile, she was a junior category manager at Coles. I was like, shit, this is actually legit. So that was our first partnership. Um, and then, you know, we launched into universal store style runner, um, and a few others in Australia. They all kind of happened quite easily. Uh, the other ones have, I love trade shows. We do quite a few trade shows every year. Uh, we did one in Vegas last year, Cosmoprof. Um, from the back of that, we got a few retailers in the US. Uh, we've just launched in Vonmar, Urban Outfitters. Um, we're in conversations with a couple of other retailers on that. Um, and we just came back from Italy, Bologna, Cosmoprof about a month ago. So we've got 27 deals on the table from that. So that's how we build those connections personally. But there's so many ways. I mean, approaching buyers directly on LinkedIn, um, using platforms like RangeMe to get in touch with the bigger retailers. I'm not. I'm not going to sit here and say I'm an expert because I still like. I look at you and go, "How the fuck did you get in Alta?" Right? We have emailed them. We've done um, brand submissions on RangeMe. You know, we haven't even had a conversation with someone to even start that process. So. You know, I think the biggest one for us is probably Sephora Middle East and everyone says, oh, how did you get in there and why the Middle East? Why not Australia? Um, And again, that came on the back of we were stocking our product in a startup beauty 
online retailer in the Middle East a few years back, um, very small volumes. I don't even know if they're still around, but the, the girl that worked for that business moved across to Sephora Middle East and she said to the the category you, uh, category manager, you've got to talk to Mia about Slickstick. It's the best. So that was a word of mouth opportunity. Um, but it's interesting because people go, why aren't you in Sephora Australia or why aren't you in Sephora Europe or America? Uh, unfortunately, they're not all the same business. Um I know, I think I'm pretty sure Sephora Australia is owned by the LVMH group, whereas the one in um, the Middle East is owned by, I, I can't remember, I think it's like the Chambard group or something like that. So even though we've pitched the brand to Sephora Australia and said, look, we're having, we're record numbers at the moment over there. We're the number one selling hair care, uh, hair care product in the category um, in the whole of the Sephora Middle East business. Sephora Australia replies saying that's amazing. Congratulations. We don't see scope for this product in our doors. So it's, it's, it's hard. It's really hard. Um, yeah. Sephora didn't want us either. Yeah. 80, 80% of, um, 80% of our, you know, probably more 90% of the brands that we pitch, they say no. Uh, so people see us launching in Sephora and Urban Outfitters and all these global retailers, but they don't know how many have said no to us to get to that. It's crazy that you didn't like, for us, I understood like, they don't like a why the, the harder part about a, a product like ours, three hundred dollar price point? It's like it's not a consumable product. People want products that are bringing people into their stores every yep. day. But something like Sleek Stick, something that someone's going to repurchase so often. This is going to be a controversial thing to say, but I feel like in Australia, there's a lot of tall poppy syndrome. Um, and when I, as a female founder, will pitch a brand in the US, they jump up and down. They love it. Here, you pitch to a brand, and usually they're females female buyers in the same age category as me and they've probably seen me on socials and they are like, no, we're just, uh, it's not for us. I don't think it's controversial to say there's tall poppy syndrome in Australia. Yeah, bad. It it exists a lot. I mean, maybe, yeah, maybe it's even, it's it's so funny. Like a lot of females will talk about like female empowerment and and, encouraging and champion each other. It doesn't exist in this country. it's, It's not really like that from no, what I've it's seen really not, not just you from, from other friends and business like I think in, in Australia like you said with that tall poppy thing there is a lot of jealousy mm-hmm. that goes around and it's like it triggers people because they there's, a, there's a few like and you know um you would you've just said you spoke to sister wood Rena she's amazing oh Rena's one of those people that you can call and ask for her formulator and she'll tell you right I'm not saying to do that, but she's so open book and she genuinely wants to see other people succeed. She's American though, right? You know, yeah. they're different to us. Um, another person who's like that is Tara and Steve from Mermaid Hair. I can get on the phone to Tara and we're in the same category. Like we're hair, right? I can get on the phone to Tara or Steve and ask them a question about anything and they will tell me their contact to their distributors. They genuinely want me to succeed. Whereas I've contacted some other female founders and I obviously won't name them and be like, oh, um, you know, do you have an, like who's, cause I noticed that the shelf ready packaging in Coles or on a global, on a big retailer, you need to have the special type of cardboard for the product to sit on the shelf. And we wanted to bring that on shore if possible. And I was like, oh, can, like, who's your, your SFP manufacturer? And they're like, I'm not, I don't want to tell you. Mm. It, it's a cardboard. We're in completely different categories. You telling me who makes your cardboard shelf trays isn't going to jeopardize your success. Yep. You know what I mean? So you've got to be really careful who you associate with because 99% of people don't want you to succeed. And that's the reality. Yep. So you've got to make your make sure that the people that you keep close to you, they genuinely want you to win. And I can hand on heart say that the ones around me do. 
um, but there's a lot out there that don't. For sure. And like it, it's a general rule, but yeah, there are so many amazing people that are, are so willing to help people succeed and want to see, uh, see people succeed. Now, part of the, the journey of growing a, growing a business is obviously hiring a team. Mm-hmm. Now, I've had a lot of really great hires and some that were definitely not. What are some of the things you've learned from, from hiring? Um, I will only ever use a recruiter moving forward uh, because at the end of the day, I only know what I know and I don't know what I don't. So if I'm hiring a finance manager, for instance, and I'm sitting there and interviewing them about finance, I don't have a fucking idea what <laughs> to ask them. I don't know how to... I don't know how to interview someone for that role because I don't know that role, which is why I'm hiring for it, right? So um, having someone that can help me with recruiting, they know what I need. They know who the right person is for that role um, because I've hired some pretty dud people before and unfortunately that's just purely on the back of me hiring the wrong people because I didn't know. What do you think you did wrong? Was it the skill or more the attitude? Uh, Usually skill. Yeah. One thing that I've found, um, I'll never hire someone. Well, I wouldn't say never, but I would be reluctant to hiring someone that's come from corporate, uh, because I find that they usually, let's say you hire someone in marketing that's come from a big corporate company. There's 50 marketing managers. Uh, there's generally five people working on one project and that project, usually the span of that project is over six to 12 months. We're very different in the startup world. I need that project done next week and I need you to work on it on your own and I need your job, your role to be so diverse. Yes, you're hired as the marketing manager, but you may need to help me pack some orders. You may need me, you you may need me. uh, So I may need you to help, um, you know, test some products. I might need your import in product packaging. Like we are, we're a small team here at Slick, but we're a very diverse team. Um, and we are all very collaborative in our work. So that's the most important thing for us. We've had people come in as a marketing manager and you ask them, well, that's not part of my role, right? So if you, I will only look at people moving forward who have come from a startup or a small business because they understand collaborative working and they know what hard work is. There's none of this rolling in at 10 past nine, going, getting a coffee, sitting down. By the time you actually open your emails, it's 10 o'clock. Then you go take your 45 minute lunch break. And then you're out the door at five o'clock on the dot. Like that doesn't sit with me at all. So that's what I look for when I'm hiring people. Yeah. I feel like I've, I've, I've made the same mistake hiring from massive, massive, um, global companies, like from marketers. And it's like, I don't think they might've been brilliant at their job there, but like realistically, no one really knows how well they're doing apart from their like, like they don't know what they're doing, how that affects the bottom line or the top line of business. Yeah, Everyone is so accountable in their roles in a small business. Like everyone is so vital to to the survival or the thrival of the death of the business. Like you need to be accountable for this stuff. And it's not even like, it's not even having the business yourself, but being a marketing manager in an e-commerce business, you're the second most important person in the business. Yeah. Arguably at times you're going to be the most important because you do an amazing job. Everything else is going to be so much easier, but it's like the accountability and like actually being accountable for the results. If you do something or you don't, the business is going to survive because of it and it's going to do really well or it's going to fucking fail. Mm -hmm. What about hiring from an agency? Because obviously it's closer to our world, but I've had also not great results because like hiring from agency, like what do you do? Like come, come, they'll come to you with all this amazing reporting. I'm like, 
Why Again, do you do all that for? Again, it's too much. It's, it's too much reporting. I don't want reports. I just want the job to get done. So, for instance, you know, I've got an in-house graphic designer now, probably the best hire because we, she's just incredible. We, I don't know how I'd live without her. Having to go to a, a, a design agency and write out the brief and then they come back with their scope and then there's the planning and then there's the mood board and you just want one fucking logo. Why does it take six weeks? Just do me the logo in five minutes. Like it doesn't need to take that long. And I think when you're in the startup world, you want everything done yesterday because you are just like a hamster on a hamster wheel. You're running at a hundred miles an hour, 24 seven. We don't have time for shit kicking around. Do you know what I mean? So agencies are great when you can't afford to put someone on PAYG full-time or part-time, whatever it is. Um, But for me, I try and avoid them. I'd rather have someone here doing it full time and that's their sole focus, not working on 20 brands at once. Yeah. And like I've, I've had to make some adjustments myself as well. We had at one point, there was like 12 or 14 staff. Now we have like five of us internally and, and like a really close agency partner, but not like a big agency. I don't ever want to work with a big agency again. You're just a number. They don't know you. They don't care. They don't yeah. really want to know what moves the needle for the business. But at that point I was so much unhappier. I hate like doing it like that. It's like, if you're going to be in business, this is not the way that anyone would tell you in any business book. It's like uh, hire around who suits you mm-hmm. and who's going to work with the way you work. Like you're not here, like you're taking all the risk. You're in business. Like you said, there's a lot of challenges you have to go by. What I found work really well was hiring people that worked with the way that I'd want to work. Mm-hmm. And hiring from my network was actually the best thing I ever did because like, you know, the person, you know, their values, you know how they work. Mm-hmm. Like Steph as well, I'll just get her to do all this random stuff, like not necessarily in her JD. And I'll just flick it. Like, this is what I'm thinking. Yep. Sweet. You try and do that to like someone that come from an agency. They're like, no, I need a brief. I need dot points. This, that, the oh, purpose. I'm me. like, I can't, I don't yeah. have time. Yeah. So there's a million things that you got to do as a founder of a business. Like sometimes like you have this like sporadic chaotic energy and like to get someone that can take that and be like, sweet, I get that you got a lot on your plate and be able to go and action that is the best. And um, the five o'clock thing was something that burned me for so long. Burned me for so long because I came from sales even when I was in corporate and it's like, can't leave at five. You know what I mean? So it's like I had to adjust to that. I hated it. It bothered me for so much. And, and it still does to a point, but I'm just like, for the good ones, if they leave at five, but they've done the job in the day, Absolutely. it's fine. I but agree. if it's every day and it's clearly you, you're working off the clock, it's not outcome focused. Absolutely. Then it becomes I'm, a bit of I'm an issue. I'm very flexible with my staff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've got some of my more senior staff. Um, they get to choose their hours. If they want to start at seven and leave at four or three, that's fine. I don't care. You can work from Mars for all I care. Is you're getting the job done, I, I really, it's fine, I'm fine with it. It's probably the more junior ones that kind of take the piss that you worry about. You know what I mean? Which I don't have any of them now. That I've, I've got a, such a great team. It's better, right? Yeah. Just have less staff, pay them a little bit more. They're a bit older and yeah. it, everything's so much smoother. Because I'm not a micromanager. People ask no. me what sort of boss I am. I'm not going to be over your shoulder saying, what are you doing now? What are you doing now? What are you working on at the moment? I will go in my office and you won't see me all day because I'm going to have my own shit that I've got to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to know that on our, you know, Monday morning whips, you can sit down and you can tell me everything that you've done in the last week and what you're, what, what you're working on moving forward. And I'm so content with that. Same. Yeah. Yeah. It's different. Like if you wanted to build, I don't know what your goals are, but like I used to think I wanted to build like a hundred million dollar company, a billion dollar company. But it's like, not that I don't want to do that anymore, but like I don't want to be a CEO of a hundred person. No, no way. I can't wait to be able to afford to hire a CEO. Oh yeah, same. I couldn't do it, but it takes a long time or takes like, I think it's an ego thing to realize that 
I don't think the owner of the business should be the smartest person in the business or is ever No way. You know? Yeah. I feel like I'm the dumbest person Sometimes in the business. Sometimes so do I. I genuinely do. Yeah. I sit down with my sales and my sales team and I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. I sit down with <laughs> finance. I'm like, I don't even know how to read that P&L yeah. right now. Like I don't, I don't. Like I feel so stupid sometimes um, and that's one thing that I'm so grateful that I've realised is that you need to hire someone better than you if you want your business to succeed. And, you know, as a 32-year-old woman, I just got engaged. I want to start a family eventually and the thought of doing that whilst being a CEO, founder, director of a business, that's I think that's impossible. Yeah. Personally, I actually spoke about this on my Instagram the other night. I don't know how that is genuinely possible. And it terrifies me because this business is my life. Like I love this business. It is everything. Morning and night, 24-7, that's all I think about is the success of this brand. When you bring a child into the world, you all you want to do is focus on that. I don't know how the hell it is humanly possible as a female to run a company and have a family. I really would love someone to challenge me and tell me otherwise, but me personally, I don't know how that is humanly possible. Yeah, Unless I was to hire, you know, someone to take over my role and have had so much faith and trust in them that they will continue to take the business, you know, onwards and upwards. But again, I just don't know how it's possible. Yeah, the good people. Like I've, I've chatted to my ops manager briefly this morning. Like usually he's one of my best mates as well. I had one of my best mates do all the operation stuff, all the stuff he does with Excel blows my mind. I don't even know what he just did, but cool. Thanks for doing that yeah. for me. But it's like before, like two years ago with Happy Skin Co, I couldn't be here for three days. We've been here for three days. Um, and like I've checked my, my Happy Skin email once a day, just in the morning flicking through, just seeing if there's anything urgent. And then I don't even have to worry. Two years ago, I could never do that. And yeah. it's not the life like I wanted. Like even now, an hour into a, a, a podcast, I'm like, how many emails that I need to action? Yeah. Like what fires that need to be put out? It's just non-stop. And I don't think that's viable. That's not healthy. Mm-hmm. It's not viable. Um, so yeah, I definitely need to work on that side of things. What, work-life balance, like you said, you can't even imagine it at this point. How do you manage having a life? Like as you're engaged, as people know, so it's like, seems like you have an understanding partner. He's hungry. You're hungry. You want to yeah. build something, but how do you manage still having a life when you're, like you said, so passionate about building the business? It's hard. And especially someone like Justin, he, my partner, Justin, he is very smart. Um, he takes on a lot of my stress in business as well. And I wouldn't be surprised if one day he joined the team um, and, you know, came on board and helped me because, you know, a lot of the behind the scenes stuff, he is, there is my sounding board. He's my problem solver. I don't like to admit it very often, <laughs> um, but he's very, very good at what he does. But I feel like, you know, having him so involved and invested in my business emotionally, it can definitely have, um, you know, a negative impact on relationships and your 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 life. So, you know, I come home from here, I get home like 6, 6.30 and for the next four hours that I'm awake, I'm just talking about my problems. <laughs> just talking about business, things I need to do. We need to get a VAT in the Netherlands. We've got stock on the way to Europe. We've got, you know, we can't get our VAT in the UK. And I'm on the phone to the HMRC in England at eight o'clock at night because they're just waking up. You've got Sephora starting at 5 p.m. our times when they're in the office at 9 a.m. their time. So it's it's literally 24-7 when you're running a global business. Yeah. And it's stressful. Saturdays here in Australia or Fridays still in America. So I'm still working because all of our US retailers and our US warehouse have got issues and problems and questions. So it's 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 full on. Hundred percent. It's full on. It could it could work. Like it's it's always risky to bring like 
partners into businesses. But Raquel, like who was Elijah, she brought her husband Adam in and she said one of the best things she's ever done. Yeah. It's like if you have good people, obviously you yeah. know him back, back, like all the way. Yeah, you but you, you still got to protect yourself. For sure. Yeah, for sure. and I'm not stupid, um, but I do. I know a lot of people, amazing partnerships like Mermaid Hair, Steve and Tara, they're an amazing duo. Um, they make it work. You know, I know a lot of couples that have done great things, but yeah, it's, it's nerve wracking. It's scary. Cause I'm, I'm a very realistic person. Um, I love Justin and I see my life with him, but shit happens and the divorce rate is very high. Uh, so you've got to be careful. You've got to reality, really protect yeah. yourself. Yeah. 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 Now, I'm logical. That's the one. I want to, I've been doing, um, some, because we have a lot of econ people on, I've been doing some like advice questions, just get your thoughts and on, on econ or some certain experiences you've had before we wrap up. Now, first question I've been asking everyone and it's been a different answer um, all the time is what's one thing that you know now that you wish you knew at the start, like one aha moment, one thing that you learned that you're like, Fuck, that's, that's a game changer. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I've got a lot of things, but one in particular I feel like it's a bit of a boring answer, but it comes down to just making sure you're legally sound, making sure that everything is set up correctly, whether that's even from a trademark perspective. You know, when I first started Slick Stick, I didn't didn't want to pay the money to get a trademark, right? Thankfully, after a year I did and I've now obtained Slick Stick because we have all these competitors in the market now who have, um, you know, created their own name for the product, but everyone still calls it a slick stick. Like we created the identity identity for that particular product. So when Schwarzkopf came out with their got to be anti-flyaway hair wand, thankfully we've got the trademark slick stick so they can't call it, but all their customers will still like, oh, I bought this Schwarzkopf slick stick. Yeah. You know what I mean? So things like that, you never know where your business is going to go. So protect yourself legally at the start. One thing that I didn't do initially was get the Madrid protocol, which means yeah. I can have the trademark globally. Now we're having to trademark in each region right. and it's a fucking nightmare. And it's costing you t- it costing times me more at least. 30 grand to yeah. trademark one product. So my advice, which I wish I knew earlier, was just protect yourself because you never know. This could turn into a beast. Protect yourself legally. Are you trademarking Slick Stick or Slick Hair Co? What's Slick your Stick. Yeah. Yes. Um, so you trademark the logo Slick Hair Company, but it's probably a bit too broad to to trademark the name of that, the brand. But the actual, like I said, we own that IP for that particular product. So Slick Stick, it's like Band-Aid, right? There's Elastoplast, there's Plaster, there's, you know, um, all these different brands, but we all call it a Band-Aid. Slick sticks the band aid for this problem. Yeah. yeah, try. We've actually, yeah, on a um, rookie error on my on our end, not knowing anything. Try, try trademarking Happy Skin Co. Not easy. We did, but really, yeah, That's yeah, we've amazing. got trademarks in all our main markets, yeah. but not easy. The amount of money we've had to spend doing certain things. But then uh, there's one thing getting a trademark. There's another thing contesting a trademark infringement, right? Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. You know, someone could just go and do it anyway. And then you've got to, you've actually got to pay to fight that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, exactly. You have to pay, like people can breach your IP. You've done every the right day of the thing, week. Yeah. And then you have to spend money and fuck lawyers are expensive. Yeah. Yeah. But it's things you learn. Like uh, one thing, and this is because obviously me and George, uh, he, he was with me. He built the business for the first year and then he left. And um, he's, his new business did a completely random, unique name. He's like, I'm never going through that process again. Yeah, but you don't I know when it. you start, you know? No, so you don't know. Happy skin, like the two most fucking common words. Yeah. So, yeah, you, you learn uh, a lot of lessons going through it. Now, what do you think that 
the most important trait a founder needs to have to be successful is? Um, you need to learn and understand your strengths, but most importantly, know your weaknesses. And that was one thing, even to this day, I put so much pressure on myself when I don't understand something. And it, I, I get myself into a, like a real mental state where I'm like, I don't get this and I need to, and I don't deserve to own this business if I don't understand to fucking read that spreadsheet. Mm. Um, so I've learned recently to really be able to take a step back and be like, it's okay. You don't have to know everything. You don't need to. You hire people. You need to know, be smart enough that when you realize that you're not good at something, hire someone to come in who's better at it than you. That's something that I am still adapting and learning every single day. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, it's hard at the start because your ego is like, no, I want to be the best at everything. I want to know everything. Now I'm like, if the business runs and there's going to be people that are so much better at doing the certain things, I think it's a good thing. You know what I mean? It's like, what sort of life do you want to have as well? Like, giving up a little bit of control and putting trust in people is scary, but it's going to like, it's hundred percent essential to take your business to the next level. Now, another thing that I get asked a lot, like from people that hit me up, Dylan, should I drop ship or should I build a brand? What's your thoughts on that? Um, Personally, I like to build brands because you can sell brands. You can't sell a drop shipping business. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me personally, I like to build the identity of a brand. I like to create the community. Um, I like the, you know, the optic optics of looking out into a business personally. Um, and I don't think drop shipping sustainable over a long period of time. That's- it's it's becoming less and less sustainable. Like yeah. Meta don't want drop shippers on there. They make it extremely difficult. Um, but yeah, have you ever drop shipped or you every, for every business from the start? You, I definitely dabbled in it initially, yeah. but it's not sustainable. You make some money and then it dies off. It's not long-term. Whereas I see slick as like a five year, 10 year plan. Yeah. And how, what's the big vision for slick? How big do you want to take it? I'd like to sell this company one day for over a hundred mil. That's my plan. That's my goal. Um, we're about to launch full hair care. Like we're, we're expanding the product range. Um, I want to become a well-known hair care brand across the world. That's, that's my goal. That's my vision. What, what motivates you? Like that's an awesome goal, but what, what's underneath that? What motivates you to want to do that? I've always been very driven by money. Um, I've always been fascinated by successful people. Uh, and that's not just in my adult years. That's as a kid. Like I used to look at someone driving in a Lambo at six years old and go, why is he driving a Lambo? But he's driving a Holden Commodore. What's, what's, what's he done in his life and what hasn't he done in his life? That's always been very interesting to me. So that, that's, I think probably my biggest driving factor is I don't want to live a mediocre life. You think a part of that because be able to you grew up very humbly? Probably. Yeah. I've watched my, my parents argue over money and, um, I always wanted to be able to support my family and I want to be able to take my family on, you know, trip European holidays and, you know, yachts and. PJs, like that's my vision. I know it's very materialistic, but that for me, I want to live a very comfortable life. I want to live a, you know, a successful, happy life, which obviously doesn't always equate to money. But for me, it's like, I want to be able to do really cool things and buy nice things and support people that I love. The thing is a lot of people won't admit that though. That okay. Everyone does. Yeah. I was saying to, to the, to the girls before, um, they are, you can see it so clearly, you know, as you said, you know, Rena, yeah. they re, like, they are just angels you know they just yeah. want to help people but it's like nowadays everyone makes up this bullshit reason oh, why they, they started yeah, their business yeah they just want to, just want give, to back. The world. Yeah. Yeah, give back yeah give back there's nothing wrong with 
building a business that adds value. It's an exchange of value. They pay you, you give them I a product that does something. I don't think I've ever met someone in business who would – who honestly would not say, if there was a gun to their head and they'd tell me the truth, why are you in business? Everyone is there to make money. I don't care what anyone says. We all want to be wealthy. We want to be comfortable. We want to be able to buy assets for our family members. We want to be able to support our family. We want to live comfortably. Yes, 100%. I want to, there's more than that. I want to be able to inspire people. I want to be able to inspire future female founders. Um, I want to be able to give to charity. I want to be able to do things like that totally. But I can't do that without making money. So the, the real reason is money. And then there's an, a world of things that I can do with that. Yeah. For me, it's like obviously money, but like it's freedom. The reason I want money, but the freedom to do whatever, I, what I want, whenever I want, as much as I can. Like we live whatever, 80 to 100 years. Like, and this is something that I've had ingrained in me since a little kid, for, for good or for worse at certain times. Like I can't, I've never been able to, this is going back from three years old, I've never been able to do things that I can't see the point of doing. Like I just don't fucking know why people do it. I agree. I just want to be able to do what I love. And and like obviously the more money I have, the more people I can help and inspire. Absolutely. Do you know what I yeah. mean? But it's like the ability to wake up every day and it's like I don't measure myself anymore by like how much money we make or how much money is in my bank account. It's like how much do I enjoy what I do every single day? But it just happens the things I want to do require me to have money. Do you know what I mean? And I think money's a really taboo topic and like it gets thrown around. Is it like, though? Like why? Yeah, if, that's what I mean. Not, it's not because, to me, but it, because it gets the people, presented because like Because the that. people that are saying that, oh, you shouldn't care so much about money, they don't have it. Yeah. And if they had the chance to have it, their opinion would be very, very, very different. Everyone wants more money. That's, that's I, I believe that that's fact. They do, yeah. But they, yeah. But they, they won't admit that that's what they want. Because of course there's more to life than Happiness doesn't come from money. I get that. But I'd rather be crying in the back of a fucking Lambo than on a bus. The thing is like <laughs> if, if you have, I like most people, a lot of, not the most, a lot of people's problems though come and it's, it's, it's so funny. Like obviously money doesn't buy happiness, but if you're like, I don't like, I just think if you've got the money to do whatever you want, you can find happiness. Yeah. You can go on really cool health retreats. But, you, but can you can get the travel best, the world. You can get the best therapists. You can, you can travel the world. Because, well, like, okay, let's just say you got $100 million in the bank, but you're unhappy. What's going to make you happy? Figure that out. Yeah. If it's creating art, if it's painting, if it's, it's learning giving guitar, back. If it's giving back, you can go and do that. 100%. You know what I mean? I know mental health is something I'm, I'm very aware of and people struggle and it can be a chemical thing and, and that's different. But a lot of people, when they are depressed, it's just a rut that they're stuck in. And they feel stuck and they don't feel a way out of it. You can change your fucking life for the better. And like, that's part of why I want to do the podcast, why I I do mentoring to help people. It's like people want to complain that life's so hard, but you don't need to do that. For one, it's stupid, but it's like, you can change your life too. Like you, I don't have to like be like, nah, you're a fucking loser. You can like, you can't like either way you can fucking do it. Everyone has the opportunity. If you live in Australia, whether you don't have money or you do, you you have privilege. I know the word privilege gets thrown around, particularly me, a white male, and you're you have, privileged. I believe equal opportunity. You do. Yeah. You do. So it's like the control is in your hands and it's like go get yours. You know what I mean? Now let's wrap it up. We, we've been doing something on this, on this trip where one of, the, one of the last guests leaves a, a question for you. So I've got one last question for you before we wrap this up. This question's from the Hey Bud Boys. Um, where is it? Let me get it. 
Okay. He said, throughout your journey, this is from Alex, one of the co-founders, throughout your journey, when you found yourself in the lowest moments, what advice would you give to yourself um, back then to get through it? Wow. Um, Valium. (laughs) (laughs) No. um, I think it all comes back to your why and why you started this business in the first place. And it's easier said than done because I go through many, many troughs in business um, and days where I just don't want to get out of fucking bed. I'm like, this is too much. This is too hard. This is too stressful. I'm like, you should see my neck at the moment. I'm covered in a stress rash. I've had to cover it with concealer. My whole neck is literally look like I've got 50 hickeys. I've just blown up in this stress. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just covered in this stress rash at the moment because it's so full on. I've got so much going on at the moment, good and bad, more bad than good, really. Like that's business. Um, But it's just kind of pulling yourself away from that current situation and just looking at the bigger picture, reminding yourself why you're doing this and just try and get yourself back on the path. That's, Mm. that would be my advice. That's really good advice. And like, Sometimes perspective, all you need to do is look back at how far you've come from like sitting on your floor, wrapping the stickers around the things. Like how yeah. many slick sticks have you sold now, do you think? We've sold over half a million units. Over half a million yeah. slick sticks. Yeah. Like that existed because you created it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like 100%. It can be really easy because I'm as well. I always want more, more, more. I want to achieve more. I want to do more cool things. And for me, it's becoming less about money because I, I have money in the bank. It's more about what cool shit can I do like this? Well, I, I, I love doing this. You know what I mean? But if I want to do stuff like this for the rest of my life, I need to, you know, obviously make money. Um, so I feel like that is, is tricky, like getting caught up in the stress of doing shit, but like you've already achieved so much and do you feel proud of yourself? I do. Yeah. We've just moved into this beautiful new office. I walk in the lift every day and I'm like this, I've created this. Mm. So I'm definitely proud of myself, 110%. Um, but I also put a lot of pressure on myself as well to I was achieve more. I going so. to say that you, you seem like you put a lot of pressure on yourself. So much. Really yeah. high expectations. Very Too high. Do you ever beat, like, beat yourself up when you don't do things right? Or like, of course. Mm. Yeah, totally. I punish myself. I'll, I'll you know, I'll, like I get really angry um, and – make myself break out in a stress rash. <laughs> um, and I get frustrated when I don't understand something. That's my biggest thing. So it's a learning curve. It's I, I, I'm such an amateur in business compared to this world and the entrepreneurs and founders in this world. I'm seriously, I'm so amateur status um, and I'm so willing to admit that. Um, I get nervous even coming on these sorts of podcasts. I'm like, what do I know? What do I know? You know, um, but I do know that what I've created so far is admirable. Like people do want to know how I've done it, which is why I'm so open to sharing. Um, but yeah, I, I've got so much more to learn and that's why I love podcasts like this because I, you do, you learn so much from people. But one thing you do learn is you resonate so much with other founders. At the end of the day, none of us know what the fuck we're doing. None of us have any idea. But one thing that we do do is we put one foot in front of the other and we figure it out. Keep trying. Just keep trying. You'll make, you'll make it work. You will find a solution. Yeah. That other stuff you're just talking about. I know it's hard when you go, go, go about this goal. You want to be in all these retailers, hundred million dollar business, but I know it's hard to balance so many things, but what you were just talking about how, yeah, you can be really hard on yourself. Is that another type of goal that you have like over the next few years of business to get better at the soft stuff with yourself Absolutely. as well? I want to give myself a break mm-hmm. emotionally. It's stressful. I really struggle with it. Um, and I do, I want to be able to sit back and go, it's okay not to know everything. You, It's not possible 
to know everything. So that is, of course, that's a long, that's a goal. I need to f- figure that shit out. Oh, we, we all do. <laughs> <laughs> I think about it a lot and I've still got a lot of work to do. And like, like I said, I've done things that a lot of the people expire to. It's like, I know what I know, but there's a million things I don't know. You know what I mean? So there's, And that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, Mia, thanks for your time so much. Where's the best place for anyone wants to see what you're doing, whether you sell for the business, where's the best place people can check you out? So I love sharing my business journey on probably Instagram, um, just at Mia Plessic. Um, although I'm so busy, I haven't been sharing as much recently, but I definitely like to share as much as I can. And the business, is it Slick Hair? Or at Slick, Slick Hair Co. Slick Hair Co. Instagram, TikTok. Yeah. Cool. Um, we'll get you to leave a question for our next guest. Okay. Which is going to be in Sydney, meant to be the Melbourne one, so you got a bit of a spoiler as who it'll be. Okay. But anything you can think of, it doesn't matter. It can be business, it can be mindset, it can be process, whatever. Um, yeah, but oh. yeah, exciting. Oh, we'll get you to write it down after. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't have to think about it on no, the spot. No, okay, no, good. No, Cause spot. I want it to be a juicy one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, fuck it. Done. Melbourne last podcast recorded. We made it. I Good can go job. home and sleep for 10 hours tonight. I love it. Thanks for having me. No, you're, you're the best. So congratulations on success so far. And I'm excited to watch, watch you guys get in every retail in the Amazing. world. Cause it seems that way. Let's do it. Cool. Thanks. All right, done boys. Well done. Let's go home. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode or you got something out of it, do yourself a favor, do me a favor, do your friends a favor and share this with them and they can come along on this journey with us. Thanks again and I'll see you next time.